eight months later when I was in Zwickau, there was someone there that I I could not understand him at all. <laughs> I had no idea what he was saying. Uh, he could understand me, but then he looks over at my companion and he says, is he brand new? This is Cold War Conversations. If you're new here, you've come to the right place to listen to first-hand Cold War history accounts. Do make sure you follow us in your podcast app so you don't miss out on any of the episodes. In the early 1980s, East Germany had 5,000 members of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. Most of them had been members since World War II. In 1982, East German leader Erich Honecker historically allowed the church to build a temple in Freiburg, and in 1988, Mormon missionaries were allowed into East Germany. Ken Brady describes his experiences as a Mormon missionary in East Germany as the country gradually disappeared and was absorbed into West Germany. Ken also gives us a valuable view of life away from Berlin in cities such as Cottbus, Gorlitz, Schwerin, Frankfurt an der Oder and Eisenhüttenstadt. It's a fascinating story told with humour and candour as Ken grapples with local dialects, the local food and tricks with East German currency. Now, Cold War history is disappearing but a simple monthly donation will help keep this podcast on the air and preserve Cold War history. You'll get the sought-after Cold War Conversations coaster as a thank you, and you'll bask in the warm glow of knowing that you are helping to preserve Cold War history. Hi, I'm Andrew, and I'm very proud to support Cold War Conversations with a small donation each month, because Ian's put together such a brilliant range of interviews. If you do support the podcast, your wallet will be a tiny bit lighter, but your brain will be very, very thankful. Just go to coldwarconversations.com slash donate to see the options. If a financial contribution is not your cup of tea, then you can still help us by leaving written reviews wherever you listen to us, as well as sharing us on social media. It really helps us get new guests on the show. I'm delighted to welcome Ken Brady to our Cold War conversation. I was actually born into the church. My parents, um, uh, my mother actually joined in Uruguay in South America, and uh, she came to the United States, uh, met my father in Salt Lake City, Utah, and then they uh, were married just a few months later, which I think was pretty fast, but, you know, they both felt like it was the right thing to do. And so they raised me in the church, and I always uh, felt like I was going to serve a mission. And, you know, even from the time I was a little boy, I thought, you know, it'd be great to go to East Germany just because it was uh, so mysterious, you know, that we didn't know anything about it. You know, we knew very little about the Eastern Bloc countries and, and things. So, it was uh, it was fun because my mom would always ask me, where do you think you're going to go? And I would always tell her that. And she would always respond with, well, we'll see. But <laughs> it ultimately turned out to be right. Yeah. Why why the fascination so young with East Germany? I You know, I really don't know. Um, I think some of it had to do with uh, the Olympics. I always watched the Olympics on TV. And, and uh, you know, East Germany seemed to win a lot of medals. Uh, even for being such a small country, it seemed to win more than its share of medals. And. Uh, you know, came to find out later, of course, that they had some sort of a program to, you know, get people more athletic and that kind of a thing too, right? Uh, so, uh, you know, I didn't know that at the time. I just thought it was really fascinating and, 
I, I'm not sure exactly why I was interested in it so much, but it might have been that. I think people were intrigued by well, I mean, East Germans, East Germany's performance at Olympic mm-hmm. Games was. Well, I guess it was suspect because you just thought, how can a country like a small country like this generate so many incredible um, athletes? But I guess at the time, the uh, the testing uh, technology wasn't as uh, effective as it as it is as it is now. So that fascination continued into your, you know, your twenties or late late teens and mm-hmm. um so therefore you volunteered to the church to be a missionary yes yeah and i don't know if you're uh, familiar with the process there but the the way that it works is you submit an application uh you indicate there's a couple of questions on there that they ask about whether you would uh whether you already speak another language besides english and then whether you feel like you could learn another language on top of that and uh, of course i i spoke spanish with my mother being from uruguay she uh taught me Spanish. So I grew up speaking both Spanish and English. And I indicated that uh, would I would be delighted to learn another language too. Uh, so you submit your paperwork in there and then it goes off to the headquarters in Salt Lake City. And then uh, within a couple of weeks, you get a letter back from them indicating where you're going to go. And uh, uh, you, you get the choice there to say, I'll go ahead and accept the call. Or you can say, well, I, I'll think about it or something. You know, you can decide not to. But uh Originally, my, my call was a Switzerland, uh, Spanish speaking. I was going to be serving in Zurich, um, uh, speaking Spanish to, uh, I guess they have a lot of immigrants there in Zurich. And so, uh, when I got my assignment, I read it out loud to my mom and she, uh, she couldn't believe it. <laughs> she thought I was joking with her. And so she actually took the letter out of my hand and said, let me see that. <laughs> and so she actually read it for herself and, uh, but it was, it was, uh, yeah, it was eye opening for me. I didn't expect to, to get that, but and then I thought, well, I guess I'm not going to East Germany. Uh, but, uh, when you receive your call, you, the next thing that happens after you accept it is they tell you what day to report to the missionary training center. And that's where you spend about eight weeks, um, learning the language and learning how to preach and how to proselytize and that kind of a thing. Uh, if you're learning a new language, it's about, 10 hours a day of, of pretty intense language study. So you come away uh, speaking fluent, you know, German or whatever language it would be. And uh, about a month into the time that I was there, uh, I received a change in my assignment because they were opening up the East German mission and they wanted to have people, they wanted to have new uh, missionaries from Provo come there. So, so then I wrote home and said, yep, yeah, I'm going to East Germany anyway. <laughs> Brilliant. Brilliant. I mean, I I was really surprised to hear that the church started operations in East Germany in March 1989. So well yeah. before yeah. the uh, the wall opened. How yeah. how were they allowed to operate in East Germany? Uh, you know, that's that's a really interesting question there because there was there were already members of the church who were there from the 1840s, 1850s, when the church originally started sending missionaries to Germany. Of course, it was all one country back then. And so there were a, a handful of members that were already there, maybe you know four to 5,000 that were already there, uh, whose parents and grandparents had been there. And uh, at one point, uh, the church kept uh, having talks with Eric Honecker and some of the other um, East German officials there. 
kept asking them permission to, can we please, you know, can we please proselytize? Can we please allow our members to practice the, their religion here? And one of the things that they really wanted to do was to build a temple. And for us, having temple service is something that we do uh, once a month, something like that. And then we go to church on Sundays. Uh, and by allowing them to build a temple in East Germany, that would also allow people in other uh, Eastern Bloc countries, Poland, Czech Republic, or Czechoslovakia back then, um, you know, even further east, uh, to be able to have access to um, to temple work as well. And when uh, when our church president uh, Thomas S. Monson uh, met with with Eric Conacher, he finally told him he wasn't the president of the church at the time, but he was one of the uh, quorum of the twelve apostles there. He uh, he mentioned to him, "Hey, we know your people. We followed them. We've seen them. Uh, we trust you." And uh, one of the things that they really uh, liked was in some of our Scripture, it tells us that we should be good citizens of the country that we live in. And, you know, we should be respectful of the laws. We should work towards uh, work towards being good, good people of our countries and that kind of a thing. And they were really uh, they were really inspired by that. So they gave them permission to build the temple in Freiburg. It's uh, kind of in the Erzgebirge nation uh, area of the nation. Um and, and after that, I guess just a few years later, they, they allowed them to bring some missionaries over. Uh, the first group of them came, I believe, from Hamburg um, and some of the other areas of West Germany. Eventually, they brought in some from Austria as well. And they were not allowed to preach openly, but they were allowed to visit with members. And if a member of the church had a friend visiting, they could teach them. Uh, but they were not allowed to go out in public square and on the streets and talk and that kind of a thing. But, but yeah, starting in March of 89 uh, already. And then we arrived in February of 90, almost a year later. I mean, you know, with my sort of knowledge of East Germany, I can imagine that Eric Conacher was also attracted by some hard currency investment uh, in the country um, from probably. the church as well. <laughs> probably. Yeah, <laughs> probably so. Yeah. The exchange rate was very favorable for us. I mean, we we could get five East Marks for every dollar. And uh, yeah, that, that certainly had some kind of effect on that decision, I'm sure. No, intriguing, intriguing. I had no idea that, you know, they, yeah. they were, you know, that, that this happened, you know, well, well, not well before, but at least eight months before yeah. the uh, the wall opened. Yeah. Um, so you, you're, you're learning your German and you're ready to go. How do you get to East Germany? So we, we took a flight uh, from... I guess it was, we left uh, pretty early in the morning, I remember. It was maybe five or six in the morning, something like that. We go to the airport and we take a flight from Salt Lake City to Dallas. And uh, we took another flight from Dallas on Lufthansa. We flew from Dallas all the way to Frankfurt. And we had a little bit of a layover in Frankfurt, um, Frankfurt Mine, I should mention, uh, not Frankfurt Oder, which is on the eastern side of the country. Uh, we had a little bit of a layover there, a couple of hours, I believe. And I just remember being totally exhausted uh, at the airport, um, you know, sitting there falling asleep, basically. Um, for some reason, I'm not able to sleep on a plane. And I am i don't know what it is. Maybe I'm just too nervous or something. But but uh, we were sitting there at the airport. And a couple of the missionaries that I was with actually brought a family over to talk to me uh, who was from somewhere in, in Central America. And so I spoke to them in Spanish and told them what we were doing and Offered them a free Book of Mormon. Uh, I didn't have one in Spanish at the time, but uh, but yeah. So we were there talking with them, and uh, after a little while, we took another flight uh, from Frankfurt into Leipzig, 
and that was on an East German airline. And uh, you could tell it was it was pretty. It was quite different. It, it did not. I mean, it looked clean, but it looked old. Um, and I was wondering, you know, is this plane going to survive the flight? <laughs> I sure hope so. <laughs> but uh, we landed in Leipzig, and uh, and it was uh, it was quite the culture shock to land there in, in Leipzig Airport. Um, it, you know, there was no shops. There was very little light. It was kind of a almost an industrial look to it, and the uh, everything from the way that the baggage came out. Um, and uh, going through customs and all that, I just I I didn't really know what I was getting into, um, just because it, it looked so uh, looked kind of old and looked um, looked very very Spartan really. It was just not very decorated very well, not not very colorful, um, but kind of kind of eye opening to me. My my bag actually broke somewhere along the flight, and so they had taped it closed with a lot of tape. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know if I was missing anything. Probably all those books you were carrying, Ken. Yeah, could have been. <laughs> yeah. Actually, uh, we we were told uh, to bring a lot of vitamins with us. So I had probably five or six bottles of vitamins. <laughs> right. Okay. Okay. And what was the security like then? I mean, were, were the, you know, was was it just standard airport security or quite light touch from what you remember? Uh, from what I remember, it was more than I, more than I remember from the United States, but it was, uh, like we, we literally did not want to see anybody look at anybody in the eye or anything. Cause we did not want to be suspicious or anything like that. But I think out of the corner of my eye, I could see that there were some heavily armed guards at different uh, places and things. Um, but, uh, I, I don't remember too much about that except that, you know, I was trying to focus on not saying anything stupid. <laughs> Not getting myself in trouble. Yeah. So, so so this was March 1990. So this is six months after the walls opened and before unification, which was October of that year, and before the first free elections as well. So at this point, the GDR still existed. Uh, Obviously, there was quite a lot of internal turmoil about what path they were going to go down. was the the party of democratic socialism had formed from the remains of the communist party um at that point so but the the functions of the country were still oh, operating yes. there was still the people's police were still mm-hmm. on the streets and the army was still was still yeah. there yes yeah a lot of times we still saw russian soldiers everywhere and you know a lot of the restaurants would offer russian food um and uh Sometimes we even saw, you know, Russian tanks and military machinery driving by just random days. Just, you know, I, I do remember one time I took a picture of a building I thought was interesting and, and I never got that picture back. And I found out that that was a military installation of some kind. So, <laughs> <laughs> yes, I never saw that one again. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I traveled to Eastern Europe in the early 80s and that was sort of lesson one. Don't take photos of bridges, railway stations or any military installation. <laughs> yeah. Uh, if you yeah. value the film in your camera or your camera for that matter yeah. to be yeah fair. that's right that's right <laughs> um so where was your first posting so my very first city was Kotbus. uh it's kind of close to the um polish border and just a little bit north of the czech uh border as well and uh their their football team is Kotbus energy which means energy Kotbus. i don't know if they have um nuclear energy there but but uh most of it was coal energy. And uh, I remember we lived with a family who were members of the church. We actually rented a room upstairs in their home. 
And uh, one day, uh, my companion I was with, who had been, he had been uh, serving in Austria for a while. And so he came from Austria when, um, when he was stationed with me. And I remember one morning he said, Hey, the coal has arrived. We've got to go fill the basement with coal. So let's go outside and, and help out. And uh, so I'm standing there shoveling some coal. And this, I, I, I didn't have any experience with coal. I had no idea that, you know, we, we used just electric power uh, where I grew up. But, but uh, yeah, so I'm shoveling some coal and dumping it in the it's a little window in the basement. And I thought that was, that was kind of fun. Uh, pretty interesting. Yeah, you sent me a great photo of you shoveling the coal, actually, and we'll be sharing the uh, the photos in the episode notes. There's some great images of uh, East Germany there, Ken. I'm really grateful you sent those through to me. Oh, yeah, you're welcome. Yeah. Um, how did you cope with local dialects, Ken? That was very difficult, actually. Uh, I don't know how much history people know about Germany, but uh, it's it's only been a country of a unified country since the 1870s. And before that it was little principalities and kingdoms and things that everybody had their own sort of language and dialect. And, uh, the first, the first exposure I had to it, I, I did not understand anything. Um, I, they could understand me, but what we were taught in the missionary training center was what they call Hochdeutsch or high German. And that's the easiest one to understand. It's the most common, Everybody understands you when you speak Hochdeutsch, but when uh, when I was there, uh, I guess this part of uh, Germany, I think, was Saxon, and uh, or it may, may have been Brandenburg. But anyway, when when I went there, I I really had no idea what they what they were saying. And the the first person I talked to, we we had uh, these little surveys that we conducted. Uh, so we would ask people questions like, "Do you believe in God? Have you heard of Jesus Christ? Do you have a Bible in your home?" Those kinds of things. And um, the first person that we talked to, uh, he would answer some of these questions, and I'd have to look over at my companion to see, you know, should I move on? And, and every now and then he would nod and say, "Go to the next question," and so I'd ask the next one. But you know, it was uh, it was it was difficult. After a while, you started to pick up a little bit of the local dialects. But uh, the next biggest challenge I had was maybe eight months later when I was in Zwickau, which is part of Saxon, and there was there was someone there that I. I could not understand him at all. <laughs> I had no idea what he was saying. No idea what he was saying. Uh, he could understand me, but then he looks over at my companion. And he says, "Is he brand new?" And uh, and he says, "No, he's he's been here as long as I have." But you know, just doesn't understand Zexish. <laughs> so. Yeah. Wow. Wow. And what was the story with the family you were staying with? I mean, they they'd been part of the church all their lives did they have stories of you know how difficult it had been in the past to to worship and and keep the religion going yeah they they did they shared with us quite a few stories in fact her brother had emigrated to west berlin or right before the wall was built and uh so she hadn't seen him in you know 25 or 30 years something like that uh, and then she also had a sister who had moved to the united states i believe she went to West Berlin as well, and then went to the United States from that point. Uh, so it was it was difficult for them because uh, they didn't have a building to meet in, uh, so they would have to find someone's home that they could meet with. Um, and usually, what they would do just so that the people wouldn't, uh, well, I guess so that the secret police wouldn't find them, is they would they would arrive at different times, um, not all coming at the same time, because that would constitute a gathering, and which was you know liable to attract attention. So 
um, sometimes what they would have to do as well is some of the church documents like books and pamphlets and things, they would have to memorize those and pass them around from one home to another so that if somebody came to search their home, they wouldn't find them, uh, that kind of a thing. So it was, it was very difficult. Um, and I, it was pretty eye-opening to me because I had never heard of such a thing. You know, growing up in Utah, I thought that everybody had freedom of religion. I thought that was no big deal, right? But, uh, but yeah, it was, it was pretty eye-opening to me. Yeah, yeah. Um, what what sort of jobs did they do? What what were they? Uh, you know, the, I don't remember exactly what they did for a living. I know she didn't work. Um, I think he was an engineer of some kind. Um, but uh, but yeah, one of the things that they did tell me was that if you are if you are a believer in God, then you you can't be a member of the party, and if you're not a member of the party, you can't uh, progress in your work most of the time. Uh, most of the plant managers and things would be would all be party members. And so, so they, you know, just did the best they could with what they had. Um, he was fortunate enough that they were actually able to buy their own home large enough to have a bedroom that the missionaries could rent from them. Uh, but, but I, I don't remember exactly which, uh, what kind of work he did. He, he might've been involved with, the uh, in the en- energy industry. Maybe I don't remember. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, at, at this point, were they were people worried about the Stasi still oh, yeah. at this point, or were they? Yeah, yeah? yeah. E- even at six months after the wall had opened. Yeah, yeah, they they were still concerned about that, uh, mostly because, as you mentioned uh, earlier about the the free elections. Until that actually happened, um, most people were still afraid that it could revert back, uh, and that that some of the freedoms that they were just enjoying at that point would could be going away. Um, so they they were definitely concerned about that. How did you get around, Ken? Did you have a car? Uh, in my first city, we did. Yeah, we, we had a, a Volkswagen Polo. Uh, I think they may be called the Volkswagen Fox. Um, and uh, compared to what the East Germans drove, uh, every time we would drive around and park the car, we'd always have a crowd of people gathering because they'd never seen anything like this. You know, they'd, they'd never seen a Volkswagen before. And they uh, they were used to the Trabants, which are kind of uh, they're, they're like little squarish boxes um, made out of... Uh, compressed particle board and wool and paper and whatever else. It was just weird. Uh, but yeah, we had, so my first city, we had the Volkswagen Polo. Uh, and then most of the rest of the cities that I served in, we either took public transportation or, uh, you know, we did did a lot of walking. But uh, a lot of our missionaries around the world would, will have bikes. But uh, and for whatever reason, in our mission, we didn't have bikes. We just, the, the public transportation was, was really, really uh, up to date. It was really good. Really, really effective. So we were able to get around everywhere that way. Yeah, yeah. Because one of the things that did attract me to your story is that you were quite a way off the beaten track mm-hmm. as far as where most visitors would go. I mean, Cottbus, Zwickau, uh, yeah. Frankfurt on Oder, yeah. Jira. You know, they're 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 you know quite. I don't want to put them down too much, but they were quite obscure places, and certainly not tourist destinations right. that's true that's true yeah there weren't a lot of a uh, lot of visitors not a lot of tourists uh we we saw a lot of them when we went to berlin obviously in leipzig uh we visited their address and we saw a lot of tourists there but but yeah most of the time we were the only americans anybody had ever seen why were these locations chosen for missionary work how, how were they selected uh you know that's that's a good question I, i'm not sure exactly how they did that but i know that a lot of our congregations were there uh so we we had a fairly large congregation in leipzig we had some in, in Zwickau where i was at 
uh, Yena, we had a small, really tiny group of maybe only like 30 or 40 members at the very most. Um, uh, I think that one of the reasons that they chose these areas was because they wanted to increase membership there. They wanted to get some converts and, uh, and others was because we were there to support the members, uh, in their church service as well. So, so it's kind of, uh, uh, kind of a double-edged sword there. You, you want to put people where there are members, but at the same time, in order to grow the church, you want to put them where there are not a lot of members too. So, uh, yeah. Yeah. No, interested whether, you know, the thought was, because these were quite heavy industrial areas from what I could make out, whether mm-hmm. the, it was thought to be a more fertile recruiting ground. I know yeah. you wouldn't call it that, but that, you know, that for, you know, to... um to gain members, yeah, that's and that raises an interesting point there too, because uh, one of the one of the things that is a real factor in being able to uh, gain converts is to find people who are humble and find people who are willing to be teach uh, uh, teachable, that are willing to be taught, um, that are willing to listen, and, and that kind of a thing. So, so yeah, a lot of times you'll find that with just the the working you know working class people. Uh, so we wouldn't find a lot of that uh, among the higher levels of society a lot of the, in a lot of ways right so so yeah that that could have had something to do with it as well yeah yeah when you were out did you eat out i mean did you use local restaurants and and bars yeah we uh i'm sure you've got some stories of those Ken. <laughs> yeah actually uh yeah we did we we did uh especially at first uh because as you know as we mentioned it was very inexpensive for us as as uh americans to to go there uh very very favorable exchange rate. Uh, we would get five East marks for every dollar. And, uh, so it was, uh, it, we actually were instructed to go to restaurants quite a bit for a couple of reasons. And one of them was because we could, uh, we could strike up conversations with people as they were having lunch with us. And, uh, I, I don't know if this is, uh, similar to everywhere in Europe, but we could sit at tables wherever we wanted and, and uh, some people who were not even part of our party would be sitting uh, on the same table with us and we could just have a conversation with them. But then another reason, too, was because the restaurants would be the place where you could actually get fresh vegetables more than you could at the uh, grocery stores. And so even though it was fairly inexpensive for us to go shopping at, at a grocery store, it was we had a better selection if we would go to a restaurant. Uh, and uh Hi, this is Rhonda in Virginia, and I support Cold War conversations because I think the work that Ian is doing is critically important. I think it's vital to record the firsthand accounts of people who lived and experienced the Cold War uh, because it illustrates history in a way that a book never can. So thank you so much for the podcast. It's my favorite podcast, and I look forward to it every week to be like Rhonda and help to preserve these incredible stories of the Cold War. As a monthly or annual supporter, you'll be able to listen ad-free, you'll become one of our community, get the sought-after Cold War Conversations drinks coaster as a thank you, and you'll bask in the warm glow of knowing that you're helping to preserve Cold War history. Just go to coldwarconversations.com slash donate to find out more. Culturally, it was kind of a different thing for us, too, because we didn't know that the tips were included in the price of the restaurant. And so a lot of times we would just leave the change. You know, it would come out to be, you know, seven marks and, you know, 20 cents or whatever. We'd leave eight or nine or 10 marks sometimes. Yeah, just keep the rest. Not a big deal. So we 
you know, we would eat fish, we'd eat uh, pork, we'd eat whatever whatever they had, plus whatever vegetables they had there, and and uh, usually spend only about four or five dollars. <laughs> so it was very inexpensive for yeah. us. Wow. And in those early days, as you say, being an American in Cottbus mm-hmm. um, would have been quite quite a novelty. So I guess word got round <laughs> that the Americans were in town. <laughs> Yeah, yeah. There was a there was one man that we met that was running like a little. Uh, uh, it was like a, I guess you would call that an imbus, or like it was like a like a food cart kind of a thing. And uh, he found out that we were Americans. He said, "Oh, I need you to try this." And so we, I was just going to order some sausage or something, but but uh, he had made up this hamburger, uh, and he said, "Here, have have a hamburger. This this is what I recommend to you." And it, to me, it was it was odd. It was. It was more like they had taken the sausage casing and just emptied it and made a patty out of it and, and fried that, which wasn't quite what I expected. But, uh, you know, I said, I'm, I'm going to go ahead and stick with the German food for now. <laughs> but, uh, but yeah, he was, he was quite proud of himself. Uh, he says, this is the best hamburger you've had since you left the States, I'm sure. <laughs> <So>. <laughs> and, and were, I mean, were people suspicious of you as to oh, yes. who you were and whether you were up to any bad stuff. Yeah, yeah, they, they almost everybody thought we were CIA. Uh, you know, the, <laughs> so, uh, it was it was pretty pretty interesting. Sometimes we would uh, sometimes we have really interesting conversations with people who were who were mostly drunk uh, because they didn't care that we were CIA <laughs> or they they were not concerned about it. Um, I remember one time we visited a man and. He he just pulled out his harmonica and just started playing, and um, we just so we listened to his music for about twenty or thirty minutes, and then we said, "Well, that's very nice. We'll we'll talk to you later." And he he obviously was not able to have a conversation with us because he was just too far gone. But but such a nice man, uh, <laughs> such an interesting fellow. <laughs> yeah, I mean, just being in that those parts of East Germany at this moment in time. Within six months, it was going to transform completely, and you know you were there in 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 that moment. So you must very much treasure some of these scenes and characters and oh, and converts yeah. that you that that you have. Absolutely, there. yeah, yeah. Some memories I'm I'm never going to forget. Yeah, yeah. Because in in forced, I think you you there was a teenager who uh, taught you a lot about Trabants. Yeah. Yeah, he actually worked at the Trabant shop, and uh, yeah, he was the one who told me how they made them and everything, and uh, told me that they were twenty-seven horsepower, which didn't mean much to me at the time. But you know, we have lawnmowers that have more horsepower than that, so <laughs> that was interesting. Uh, but yeah, and then he gave me a he gave me a little symbol of the you know from the front of the car and said, "Hey, you can have this." And uh, yeah, he was he was a, he was a good kid. He was probably uh, eighteen years old at the time, seventeen or eighteen. Um, I've, I've since had contact with him. He still remembers me, or at least he did, you know, 15 years ago, last time I talked to him. Uh, wow. yeah. yeah, he was, he was happy to, he, I think he, I, he's now working in West Germany at, uh, for a car maker in West Germany, but I, I don't remember exactly what he does. <laughs> <laughs> Brilliant. Brilliant. Love those sort of stories. Um, did you sort of get settled into the whole GDR lifestyle and, you know, because it sounds like, you know, you ate in the restaurants, you 
you know, went in the bars, you know, you you you, do, you weren't looking for hard currency shops all the time to no. get a Coke or something like that. No, no, we, we... I'm not sure there'd be that many in Cottbus, to be, <laughs> probably weren't. To be fair. There probably weren't. <laughs> uh, but, you know, it's interesting you mentioned the soft drinks there because uh, they had one called Maracuya, which is kind of, I think we have something similar in the United States called uh, Squirt. Uh, but this is this is more tart and it's more uh, has more um, carbonation in it. Uh, but you know, I came to develop a real taste for it. I, I really liked it. It came in this really really dark brown bottle, which I don't. I, you know, at one at one point when my companion handed me one and said, "Here, try this," I said, "That looks like beer to me. This is kind of interesting." <laughs> he says, "No, no, it's 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 just Maracuya. Try this." And it was uh, it was very very uh, it, it was very tart. A lot a lot more tart than I expected, but. But uh, but yeah, we we eventually uh, got used to the culture and got used to the the selection of food and and things, and it, we just started to fit in. We enjoyed it. Yeah, yeah. What was the drink made of this this drink? Um, I think it's something called gooseberries. I think. Oh, okay. Um, I don't know. If, yeah, they're they're like green. Yeah, green uh, they look like, like little... green uh, blueberries, but larger. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. Yeah, they're very tart. And uh, yeah, I wish we could find it again because I'd love to share it with people and say, this is what we used to drink. Yeah. <laughs> so. Yeah. Were there any other drinks? Did you try the uh, East German co- cola that they had? Vita Cola, I think it was called. Uh, no, actually, I never did. I, I was I was not brave enough to try that. <laughs> so, but, <laughs> but, uh, but yeah, I, I did have a couple of, uh, couple of my companions that did try it every now and then uh, just to see what it was like. But of course, that was uh, until about, I guess, when they unified the currencies in June. Uh, that was the end of it. We, we couldn't find any more East German products after that because they just didn't sell them. Yeah. Yeah. And we will co- we will come on to um, that in a moment. I, d- I was quite intrigued because you obviously you, you sent me some notes, which has been a real goldmine of stories in there. But yeah. I did like the uh, the innovative way you had of um running a bet about the uh, properties of East German coins. <laughs> yes. Yes. That was, uh, that was really fun. I, I had heard that they actually float because they're, they're made out of aluminum and uh, they, they, they float on water. And so at one point, I don't remember who showed me this, but somebody showed me this and, and uh, that if you could take some German coin, East German coins and you just kind of lay them flat in a basin of water, they, uh, they float. Even even the larger ones, like the two mark uh, pieces that they had, which were eh, pretty pretty large actually, but even those will float. And uh, you don't have to add anything to the water; you just fill up a bowl with water and you just lay it in there, and they and they float. So I actually was uh, every now and then I would bet some of the other missionaries. I'd say, "I bet you I can make your water your uh, coins float in that water," <laughs> and uh, they would say, "No, you can't." <laughs> like, okay, I'll do, I'll do it. So I won several bets doing that. <laughs> It was kind of fun. They were they were surprised. Yeah. I, even some of the members that we that we said didn't believe it at first, but you know they after a while they all just laughed because they they knew of the just just how silly it was. <laughs> yeah, so. I mean people people joke about that East German currency, but it sure didn't wear out your pockets. I mean, no. you know, it was mm. it was yeah. great to uh, carry around a pocket full of change. Yeah, it wasn't bad at all. <laughs> Did you have spare time or were you always on the job when you were out and about? We uh, we had one day a week that uh, we could use as what we called our, our preparation day, which would be the day when we can go shopping or we could do our laundry and, 
and uh, and we can do some sightseeing as well. And uh, one of my favorite trips that I, that I took at that time was uh, to a place called Spreewald, which is a uh, kind of a it's a little area just north of Kotbus, which is um, uh, the, the river runs through. There's lots of canals and things like that. And so some members took us there to, to look at it and everything. I thought it was beautiful. You know, it was a really beautiful area. And then I did get, uh, I, I don't believe I sent you this picture, but I I, I did get a uh, painting that one of the members actually gave me of the Spreewald area. And, and it's hanging up on my wall downstairs. Um, and uh, my wife, I showed my wife, she was really impressed, but uh, but yeah, it was it was it was enjoyable uh, to be able to go and see that, and, you know. And sometimes we go see museums and things. Um, a lot of times um, we would see things that we never thought we would ever see. And, and Berlin has fantastic museums, and uh, you know we saw a lot of Roman and, and Greek um, sculptures and 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 all kinds of paintings and things, and and even things from Egypt. And it was just just really incredible to and very eye opening, you know, for me to be able to see these things. Yeah, no, the spray valve. I've never been to the spray valve, but I, I've seen the photos of it. But it, I think it's it's famous for its pickle, isn't it? The spray valve pickle. Yeah, 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 yeah. Did, and I, did you try some of those? I actually did. Yeah, I, I loved it. I, I I pretty much liked all the food that I had in the Germany. But yeah, the, the pickles were great. Yeah. In uh i think march 1990 also you have a, a visit to berlin and you see there quite mm-hmm. a contrast with what you've been seeing out in the uh in the provinces can you describe the the contrast that you saw there so the biggest uh the biggest difference i saw was just uh how how much newer the buildings were and uh it, it just you know and a lot of people obviously you know the streets were wider lots of cars everywhere uh, but you could tell that that's where uh, where the East German government spent most of their money, uh, you know, to make it kind of the crown jewel of, of East Germany. And, uh, you know, that's where all the visitors came to see. That's where the government offices were and everything. Um, one of the things that I that I noticed was uh, I don't know if you've heard this story before, but there's a, there's a TV tower in, in East Berlin, uh, which they now call the Pope's Revenge, or at least they did back then. Maybe they still do. I don't know. But uh, the top of the TV tower is just the, just like this uh, sphere, and when the sun shines on it, you see the reflection of a cross in in the windows there. And it's uh, you know I, I saw that when I went to Berlin there, and I asked people about it, or you know just thought it was interesting. They said, "Did you notice something about the the windows up there?" It's like, "Yeah, they make a cross." He says, "Yeah, they call that the Pope's Revenge because at one point." There was a cathedral that was built on that spot, and uh, during the war, it was destroyed. And so the East German government took some money that the Catholic Church had given them, and they rebuilt this TV tower instead. <laughs> so uh, they they tried for years and years to wipe that off and, and to try to polish it or paint it or something, but eventually they gave up because they couldn't get rid of it. And so even today, you go to Berlin and you see that uh, on the eastern side, and it, it just has the cross on there. It's, it's really – I thought that was fascinating, but – um, but yeah, it was quite the culture shock to go from some of the smaller towns that I was in to, to Berlin and just see how much how much money they must have spent uh, on mm. these buildings and you know just making the city as beautiful as they could. Yeah, yeah. And w- when you were traveling around, were you, did you were you invited into people's homes so you saw the way that mm-hmm. they they lived and the, and the yeah. homes? Can you describe some of yeah. those home visits that you did? Yeah, so we uh, most of the time we would be invited over for dinner at the members' homes. Uh, we would have lunch with them or dinner, and uh, uh, some of the things I noticed, you know, just 
just a very humble circumstances that they lived in. They they didn't have a lot of furniture. The the furniture was um, it wasn't very ornate, right? It was just functional. Um, I the members themselves were very fantastic people. They were they were they were so willing to give us anything that they had, willing to share, and just really just really nice nice people. Uh, just really loved us and everything. The food was always delicious, even though it was kind of um, I'm, I'm not sure how to describe the. The, the meals that we ate, but they were not very elaborate. They were just, you know, just meals and things. None of the homes of the members that I visited had telephones, um, except for just a handful. Maybe I can think of maybe four or five people that I knew that had a telephone in their home the whole two years that I was there. Uh, you know, very small televisions. Um, uh, sometimes they would have, sometimes they would, um, they would have just, just a few books, you know, not a lot of books and everything, just small apartments and things. Uh, but but uh, people were always willing to let us in. And I, w- I actually was serving there in the summer of 1990 as well when the World Cup was going on. And uh, when that was going on, then we would knock on someone's door. They would always invite us in if we were going to watch the, the football with them. But if we said that we had a message from God, they would say, well, okay, go away. We're going to watch the game. <laughs> <laughs> But uh, yeah, so you know, they, it was it was it was interesting. It was, it was it was a good time to to be there. So they're watching the football. Are they still supporting East Germany at this point. Yes, but they uh, team. But, yeah yeah. Uh, but then they also started to switch over to West Germany. Some of some of the fans were were just happy to have Germany do so well, um, and they knew that. Or I think some people knew that you know by the end of the summer that they probably would be unified again because there was a lot of there was a lot of discussion about that. A lot of talk mm-hmm. about whether they wanted to. So I don't know. I don't remember exactly which dates that was. Um, I know it was in the summer when they had the World Cup. Uh, but by the fall, yeah, they would they'd be unified again. So a lot of people saw that on the horizon, and so they they just decided to jump on board with the with the West German team. Yeah, yeah. And what what was it like when the free elections were announced? What sort of reaction did you did you see? with that yeah that was very very interesting uh because all of a sudden just out of the blue there were all these political parties and you know just every kind of party you could think of there were probably a dozen of them i'm not even sure how many um and we saw ads for you know different uh, advertising all over the cities for for different parties and everything and, and most of the people didn't have any idea which party they should vote for um, and so a lot of times we would talk to people and we, we would, uh, go visit them in their homes or whatever. And, and they would ask us, is this how it is in America too, where you have so many different choices? It's like, well, typically in America, we have two parties. Uh, typically we have a few others, but a little smaller ones, but, but yeah, the, it was, it was hard for them to understand that freedom meant choices. You can choose different things and, and you were not going to be told which one you had to choose. And so, uh, a lot of times they would ask us, how do I decide which party to vote for? Well, you just kind of have to study them and make up your mind. Um, but uh, but yeah, that was that was a very exciting time to be around. I mean, that was that was such a uh, discussion point for so many people. And and uh, one of the things that one of the things that they always wanted to talk to us about was just to get some guidance on you know which party they should consider and do you think it makes a difference to God which party I vote for and you know all that kind of stuff. So it's like, well, I wasn't really prepared to talk about that. <laughs> so. Yeah, that that was, but it was interesting. You know, it's just something completely new for them. Uh, you know, and, and kind of, 
kind of going along with that too, when they started getting the, the West German products into the country, uh, very similar circumstances there with different kinds of cereals that they could buy or different kinds of foods and things. And they just were all of a sudden, all of a sudden they, they were faced with different decisions they had to make, like which, which brand do I use and, and why are there so many different kinds? It's like, well, you just try it and find out what you like and then buy it again if you like it. <laughs> so. Yeah, I I always find this period of East German history fascinating because it's like your whole world has been turned upside down Mm -hmm. and you're almost having to learn a completely new way of of living. And you get the impression that quite a few people were vulnerable to tricksters and all sorts that were that were coming over and you know, exploiting them and selling them stuff that they didn't need, but they were told yeah. that they, they they needed. I mean, it's – I can't even imagine what that would be like. It's almost like, you know, reaching your early teenage years and suddenly you're fast-forwarded into adulthood or something. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. It, it's – Yeah. Yeah. It's, it it's uh, really tough. It, it was – yeah, it was it was a very stark difference. Yeah, uh, and and I'm I'm glad that you mentioned that too because the very first when we were first there talking to people, they everybody was very open to learn things about the West, uh, about religion or about politics or uh, just anything that came from the West because it was so it was so guarded before, like they couldn't get any information from from the West, from the United States or from Western Europe or anything. And uh, at at some point, we could tell that was this was probably maybe six or seven months afterwards, we could tell that, that people started to get a little jaded because there were people that came in, like you were saying, that, that sold them products that they didn't need and trying to take advantage of their, uh, of them, uh, in a lot of ways. And, uh, at, at some point when, when they started to realize that it was much more difficult for us to get into homes, just to tell them we're here to talk about a religion. We, you know, we're hoping to teach you about the book of Mormon and, and what you think about that. Um, you know, just to get your thoughts about the Bible and, and about, you know, Christianity and how you feel about things. And a lot of times people wouldn't believe us. They thought we were trying to sell them something or we were trying to take advantage of them because they'd seen so many bad examples uh, before. So I think that had a, it, it had a tremendous effect on us. We, we had a much, it, it was almost night and day. Um, it, at one point it was, it was very easy to get into everybody's homes and talk to them. And then uh, at some point later, I, I would say probably by November, December of 1990, it was, it was very difficult to get into people's homes. And uh, it was mm. it was much more difficult at that point. Yeah, yeah. I just want to talk about some of the other areas you went to because um, I was interested to hear that you were coming across people who'd had no experience of religion at all. Yeah. So, I mean, where where do you start in that conversation with them if if they don't even really know where you're coming from? You know, that's. Uh... Yeah, it was difficult, right? I mean, in in some ways, uh, you have difficulties both ways, right? If people know too much, sometimes it's hard because they're like, "Oh, I know enough. I'm gone. I'm done." Um, and in some ways, when when you would talk to people who had no experience with God, no experience with the Bible at all, or anything like that, we 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 pretty much start our discussions with them talking about about God that we believe that He is our truly our Heavenly Father, that uh, all of us are brothers and sisters here on earth, and we're all just trying to do the best that we can. And and so you kind of have to start with some basic understanding about who God is and, and why uh, why we're here on earth and what we're trying to do and, um, and why he's um, 
why he's concerned about us. You talk about prayer. You talk about exercising your faith through prayer and that kind of a thing. And then when you get to that to that point, then we can move on to the next step, which is talking about uh, Jesus Christ, who came to earth to uh, save us from our sins if we follow him and if we do uh, what he asks us to do then we'll be blessed and that kind of a thing. So you just kind of have to start really, really small uh, with some of these folks. I do remember we taught one man uh, who had never prayed before in his life and uh, he didn't have any concept of the Bible or anything like that. So we shared some scriptures with him and uh, told him that, that God loved him and that he wanted to hear from him. And we taught him how to pray. And at the end of the, at the end of the lesson that we had with him, uh, this is the only time on my mission where this happened. Um, I asked you know, we always ask the, the the convert or the potential convert we're talking to. We always ask them if they want to say the prayer at the end of our meeting, and uh, almost always they say no, thank you, <laughs> because they're just a little nervous. But this man said, I, "Yeah, I think I'll try it." And so we gave him a little bit of coaching, and and he said he said a prayer, a beautiful prayer, and uh, you you could tell that he was praying from his heart. He really wanted to know if God existed, and he wanted to know if if what we were telling him was true, and. And uh, we asked him how he felt afterwards, and he said it was like the like the calm after a storm at sea. And I thought that was a beautiful uh, way to describe it. You know, just how much his life had changed just by that one thing. And uh, I, you know, I always remember that. Um, I don't remember exactly where that man lived, but he was uh, he was on the Polish border somewhere. I don't remember if it was Eisenhutenstadt or if it was uh, Frankfurt Oder or what, but it was somewhere in there. Um, and uh, unfortunately, we never saw the man again. I don't know if he moved away or what happened, but I, I never saw him again. I, I hope to this day that he still has his faith, uh, that he's um, that he's progressing through his life. But you know, never never had the chance to meet him again. Yeah, yeah. No, that's a great story. Great story. How many converts did you sort of recruit? I, I'm using. I know recruits. Sound, I'm using the wrong phraseology yeah, okay. here, but you know what I mean. <laughs> yeah. You know how, how many how many people did you get to uh, sign up out there? So my companion and I together, uh, we we ended up with 22 baptisms uh, during the two years that I was there. Which uh, it's compared to most of Western Europe, that's a very high number. A typical mission in, in West Germany would, or or anywhere in, the, in Western Europe for that matter, usually would have two or maybe three something like that. Um, and a lot of the converts that we had uh, were actually from Mozambique or from Angola. And they were there uh, on kind of a worker visa from there in, in East Germany. And they were very, very faithful people. Um, and the uh, the interesting thing about that is they spoke Portuguese, but they didn't speak very much German. And since I had spoken Spanish growing up, uh, and Spanish and Portuguese are fairly similar. They're fairly close. Um, I don't know how close they are compared to like Irish and Scottish or something like that, but you know, that we, I could still understand them fairly well and they understood me fairly well too. So we were able to teach them and, and, uh, you know, that the, the original, as, as I mentioned, the original assignment that I had was to be teaching in Spanish. And so I was able to still teach them in Spanish, which I thought was, was fascinating. Uh, but yeah, a lot of the, a lot of the conference, I'd say probably half of the conference I had were, were Africans. Yeah, yeah, because East Germany had quite a lot of them over there working. Um, and w were they were they concerned about their status post unification? Oh yeah, people. Yes, yeah. Um, after unification, they all had to go home, and they were they all left. Uh, I believe it was the 
end of September, I think before the, the country's unified, um, they all had to leave. And so we had a, we had a special conference with, with them and the mission president was there speaking. He actually asked me to, to, uh, interpret for him so he could speak German and I would speak Spanish to the members who were there and, and, uh, to the African converts who were there. We had, we had a really special meeting. Uh, and he was able to tell them, uh, that, you know, that the church didn't really have much of a presence in, in Mozambique or Angola at the time. And so they would, uh, they would be on their own for a little bit until we could actually send more missionaries there to kind of strengthen the church there. And, uh, you know, I've lost contact with all of them. I, I don't know exactly where they are or anything, but, but, uh, very, very faithful people, very good people. Yeah. Yeah. How, how was relationships with the Lutheran church? while you were there i mean were they sort of like what are these guys doing muscling in on our patch i you know that's a good question i i didn't really come across that too much uh we i did meet a man once who actually lived in in one of the church steeples which i thought was <laughs> was an interesting place to live but we met him on the street and he said oh i'd love to talk to you and he was yeah he was lutheran um and we walked into a he, he pulled out a key from his pocket and opened the door to the church i thought we're going into the church this is great and then he we went up about 300 stairs and he had a little apartment there at the top of the stairs, just a little room with a lot of, a lot of books. And he probably had multiple translations of the Bible, um, there. And, and uh, you know, he, he told us that he was glad that we were there. He, he told us that we were, that he was glad we were helping uh, to convert people to Christianity at all, uh, just mm-hmm. because it was a very difficult thing for them to do themselves. Uh, but I, I've never met to this day. I've never met a man who knew the Bible, knew the new Testament, better than this man did. Yeah, he was, he was just really, really well-versed. And, uh, we, uh, we, we were often told that if we meet someone like that, that, you know, rather than engage in some sort of a Bible bash, you know, well, this verse says this, and this verse says that, you know, that doesn't help anybody, right? The, the best thing we can do is just tell them, this is what we were trying to teach people. And if you're interested, we'll teach you some more. And if not, you know, then we'll kind of go on our way. Uh, but, but he, he was, uh, he was, he seemed to be very appreciative of us being there because in his, in his view, by us being there in his city and teaching people, knocking on doors and, and asking them if they had heard of, of God and, and if they had heard of the Bible, that it actually would help them too, you know, that people would start to return to their church. So at least for this mm-hmm. man, it seemed like a good thing. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, it's just in, intrigued what the, the Lutherans would have uh, thought of you uh, showing up. Um now, one of the one of the stories I I really liked was the story of the factory worker in Gorlitz. Oh yes, <laughs> yes, that is that was an eye opening experience, if I could to say the least. So uh, my companion and I were just I I don't remember what kind of a, I don't remember what day it was. It could have been a Tuesday or Wednesday. It was just sometime during the week, uh, around eleven o'clock or so. We were out on the street talking with people that we would meet on the street, and we would just tell them who we were and what we were doing there. And, and I saw this man and his wife and they were, they were out, you know, just shopping kind of an open area market. And, uh, and I asked him, uh, you know, Oh, you off today? Or, you know, what's, what's going on today? And he says, Oh, well, no, I'm actually working. And I asked him, are, are you working right now? And he says, he says, well, I, I work in that factory up there. And, and, and so I was very intrigued. I was like, what kind of job does he do? Is he doing like some sort of, uh, you know, competitive research kind of a thing? I don't, I don't know what he was doing there, but <laughs> <laughs> something, you know, and he says, yeah. no, actually, I work, I work in the factory, but, uh, but, uh, you know, 
they didn't have enough work for me today. So, so they, they allowed me to go home. And I, you know, as I was talking and asking more questions uh, to this man, it turned out that when he graduated from, from school and completed his apprenticeship and all that, that he was sent to work at this factory. And when he got there, the, the factory plant manager said, well, we don't have enough work for you. So you can go ahead and sit in this chair and this stool over here in the corner. And when we have enough work, we'll let you know, and you can, you can come and, and work. And so every day he would bring his lunch and he would bring, you know, a, a newspaper or he'd bring a comic book or something, a crossword puzzle, something like that. And he would sit on this chair and he would just read and, and, you know, do whatever until they, until they asked him to work. And then he finally said uh, to his manager, he said, you know, um, I have an idea. How about I just stay home and then you just let me know and send for me when you need me to come in and work. And uh, the manager said, okay, yeah, that's fine. And he never, never went back <laughs> and he was still, he was still collecting a paycheck. And, uh, I, I had never heard of this before. I mean, I'm 19 years old and, uh, you know, I'd never heard of people getting paid not to work. <laughs> that was just such a, such an interesting thing. And, and uh, my companion I was with, we could not believe it. We're just, I cannot believe that this is happening. <laughs> so. Yeah. Yeah. Well, you know, full employment in East Germany and yeah, yeah definition of employment <laughs> is somewhat different to uh, perhaps our our definition of, of employment, yeah. but great story, great yeah. story. <laughs> so the currency unification is uh, July the 1st, 1990. Yes. Um, what was the the day like? Because from what I understand, is all the shops closed the day before? Yes, and then yes. open the next day with all West German yes. goods in. Yes, yeah, it was uh, it was interesting. They closed earlier than usual, I believe. Probably early afternoon is when they closed, and uh, we could tell that there was a difference in how the city felt. I, I was in uh, I was in Schwerin at the time, I think. Um, yeah, that's where that's where I was, and we were. Walking on the along the streets, you know, and the days in uh, in Schwerin during the summer are really, really long. Like the sun doesn't go down, it seems like, until 11 o'clock at night or something. But uh, we were just kind of walking the streets, talking to people as we usually do. And, and I noticed uh, some of the shops along the side of the road there that just closed early. And you could look through the windows and see. And people were working inside and they were filling up the shops. They took off all of the East German products, you know, all the... Everything that they had, they took them all off, and I think they threw them all away. They just got rid of everything, and then they, you know, they started putting out all the West German products. And there were there were people that were that were joining us, just looking through the window, watching all these different things coming up on the shelves, and you know, different kinds of breakfast cereals and different kinds of you know bread and and all that kind of stuff. Just one day from one day to the next, it was you know, every, you could buy anything from East Germany you wanted, and then the next day you could buy anything you wanted from West Germany. And it was it was very very strange. Uh, it was it was like a it was like a total change in the in the city and just in the way that people felt about things and and uh, people spent a lot more time in the shops. You know, started looking at different products and things. And you know, one thing too that we didn't really quite mention um, was that before all of this, sometimes sometimes there would be outages of different products in the East German shops, and so a lot of times people would just get in line. They would see a line, you know, uh, outside a store, and they would go get in line, and, they, and people would say, "I don't know what's at the end of this line, but there must be something good because there's a line forming." You know, it could be bananas, you know, it could be oranges, it could be, 
you know, it could be anything, it could be chocolates or whatever. And, and, uh, after the currency union, they didn't have that anymore because, you know, if you were out of cornflakes, well, that's okay. We'll go ahead and buy frosted flakes instead, whatever, you know? So it was, uh, it was very different and you could tell the, the feeling in the, in the city was much different after that because people were so much more excited about what they could, what they could buy and what they could get in these stores. It's really, really interesting. Yeah. Yeah. Again, it's sort of like, you know, you've only ever had one or two brands of coffee before and suddenly you're faced with 20. I just can't imagine that, you know, having, having to, uh, having to, to deal with that. I mean, I guess you must've got a lot of questions from people as to how, how you navigate a capitalist lifestyle. <laughs> yes. Yeah. We, uh, one one question that we got a lot was uh, we would talk to people about Joseph Smith, and I don't know how much you know about the history of Joseph Smith, but when he was when he was fourteen, he was very confused about all the different religions that that were available in his town, and he didn't know which one he should join. And so we got to that part in the discussion where we talked to people about Joseph Smith, and then we asked them, "Have you ever felt this way before yourself?" And uh, a couple of times, several times, you know, people would say, "Oh yes, I feel that way right now." And, you know, we were a little excited about thinking, oh, well, maybe they're interested in different religion. And uh, and then they would say, rather disappointed, but they would say, I don't know which brand of toilet paper to buy. And we would say, um, <laughs> yeah, you know, that's not a life-changing event. But, you know, uh, but we they would then ask us, you know, is this like it is in the United States where you have, you know, 15 different types of toilet paper? And how do I know which one to buy? And we would tell them, just pick one and try it out. And if you don't like it, pick another one. It's not that important. You know, it's not a big deal. <laughs> yeah, no, incredible. Incredible. Um, you had a, an encounter with Steffi Graf. I did. Yes, that was that was really interesting. I, I really wish I could say I'd met her, but uh, we were uh, in, in the town of Svikau where I was. Uh, we did a lot of street displays, street contacts. And so uh, we would have to get a permit from the city to let us put up, you know, easels with pictures and things and uh, set out some tables. And usually what we would do is we would hand out a free Book of Mormon and we would ask people, you know, to take one. And, and then we would love to meet with them and talk to them about it. And so we, we set one up this day and, um, and we had pictures and things everywhere. And, and here comes a group of people. There was probably five or six men. Uh, I don't know if they were security or what. And then in the middle of them was, was Steffi Graf. And uh, she was walking by. She was wearing Levi's and cowboy boots. And and uh, and I turned to my companion I was working with, and I said, that's Steffi Graf. <laughs> and uh, he said, are you sure? I said, yeah, I'm, I'm pretty sure. Um, you know, she was tall and slender and had blonde hair and, and she had just won, you know, the gold medal in the in the Olympics, and she had won like the, I guess it was the the Grand Slam. I think she had just won um, in tennis. And I, I really wish that I had actually had the courage to go up to her and say, you know, hey, Miss Graf, would you like a Book of Mormon? You know, I, I could have I could have told her that in German, and I don't know if she would have liked that. But I, you know, I I didn't. I chickened out a little bit. <laughs> so I was really I was really hoping that she would stop by and say hello at least. <laughs> yeah oh that's a great that's a great story it's a great story as so many of these are i mean there's you've got endless endless ones here there was one where you're at some traffic lights or something and you draw up next to a soviet military vehicle yes 
Yeah. They, they were all over the place. And uh, we were just at the red light waiting there. And uh, my companion and I were sitting in our car at this point. So I must have been in Spickau at the time. Um, and he turns over to the to the officer and uh, he hands him a, a book that's in Russian, a book of Mormon in Russian. He shows it to him. And the, the officer looks at it and he, he's impressed. He starts thumbing through it a little bit. And then, uh, and then he points to his head and said, hoot, and which means, and German means hat. And, uh, and so once he understood what we were asking for, he turns over to the driver of the vehicle and, uh, and he must have said something to him in Russian, like give him your hat or something like that, because he took, took his hat off and handed it over to us. And it's a, it's, it's a military hat. It's, it's a, I guess it's a long one flat and it has like a, a Soviet symbol on the front of it. And on the inside, it even has like, uh, it even has a needle and thread for uh, sewing up uniforms or whatever, and uh, I, I still have it in, in one of my boxes in here somewhere. But, but uh, yeah, that was that was wow. really really interesting. <laughs> so, yeah, I, I was hoping for the officer's hat, but oh well. <laughs> yeah, I can I could understand that. Brilliant. So October 1990s reunification, we've already talked about how that that changed things. You know, you you were saying that the role got a lot more difficult but you, you were in different towns then i think you were in yena and you went to a place called mirana can you tell me about those places yeah yeah so yena is uh it's, it's a university town uh carl zeiss is there and uh university town um they one, one of the things that that i noticed about yena was they, they have a big tower that's built there uh, where the university is and i think that they were supposed to build it in the shape of a of binoculars but they ran out of money and so they just made it a telescope which is fine too um <laughs> so, uh but yeah that was uh that was that was fun and interesting yena only had about uh they may have had 30 members of the church there and uh, only about 10 of them uh, would come to church every sunday and, and uh there were a few that just we just never never really saw anymore at that point. But, um, but I really enjoyed my time there. We, we had a lot of fun there. Uh, one of the things that we did when I was in Yena actually is I went to, uh, uh, Weimar, which is where the Buchenwald concentration camp was. And I remember going to that and just to, just to see, uh, just to see it. And, uh, they had already torn, torn down all the buildings, just the foundations were there were left. Uh, but there was one building that kind of housed a little bit of museum information where you could see, you know, so many shoes and, and things from some of the children and, and just clothing that was left there and things like that. But, but I remember, I remember when I went to the, uh, when I went to the concentration camp that the, the information that was there that was, was different than what I had heard growing up, um, in, in the United States. I, I think that, at the time when the Russians were in, in charge or in control, the, the story about World War II was different than what we had heard when we were uh, growing up in the States. And uh, it's it's interesting. And some of the friends that I have who are in Yena say the same thing today, where, where they say that, yeah, the, the stories are, are, are much different. Um, uh, even they can tell, like what they learned when they were when they were younger in school was a different story from the, the Russians than what their children are hearing from the West Germans. And it's just, it's, it's interesting how the information uh, is so different um, just based on your perspective. Right. But um, they, they kept saying, you know, things about how the Soviets came in and, and uh, helped wipe out Nazism and all, and all that, which, you know, we thought in the United States, it was us. Yeah. I think world war two, each country sees it from their own perspective and and that eastern front the scale of what went on there 
completely overwhelms even events like D-Day and things like that and even the the battles on the um, Japanese islands in the Pacific as well. Um, unbelievable, unbelievable. The members of the church who had children, were they members of the Free German Youth, which was the sort of East German Youth Organisation, or did the members not allow them to be part of that and what were the implications there do you know um i I do know a little bit about that um most of the members uh children did not participate in that uh most of them did not but but the ones that felt like they had to or they were required to uh actually did but uh i do remember meeting a man um who was a member of the church as well and he kind of laughed about it and kind of joked about it before uh, or after, you know, when, when we were there, he said it wasn't funny at the time, but he said that it was it, looking back on it now, he said it was actually kind of funny that, that they had this and they were required to participate. But, but I don't remember exactly what they, what they did, but he actually showed me a, he actually showed me a patch that he had on his, on his jacket that had the FDJ, uh, you know, mm. free German youth, I guess is what that stands for. Yeah. Jugend. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, and, and sometimes he would sing some of the songs and he would just laugh about them too and say, I can't believe they made us do this, uh, kind of thing. But, um, you know, and there were some, in some ways there were some similarities, or at least they said there were some similarities with the Boy Scouts of America. Um, you know, because we, we put our kids in, in these and indoctrinate them on, on capitalist dogma, you know, it's kind of how they would say it, but, but yeah, it's just, uh. I, I didn't meet too many of them that participated into it, but but uh, some of them that felt like they had to or they were required to, they actually did. Yeah, I think it's difficult because if you lived in East Germany and you had no idea the wall was going to come down and it was just going to be there forever and this was going to be your life forever, you know how how you would deal with that. You'd you'd need to be incredibly brave to be a major dissenter yeah you know yeah i, I completely I'm, I'm not sure i agree yeah so december is the end of your oh actually december 91 mm-hmm. so you're there mm-hmm. for so are you there and never go you know you haven't been back to the states during this period no, or no just stayed the whole time there i did serve in west berlin from november of 90 to april of 91 so i was there for a good five maybe almost six months uh so and that was almost like going back home to the states because West Berlin was very modernized. Uh, everything was everything was just like I remember back home. And there was there was a big culture shock for me when I went from Zwickau to Berlin, uh, just in terms of how enormous the city is and, and everything that's available, all the color, all the lights, you know, all the everything was just it, it was just a huge culture shock for me. But uh, yeah, and then uh, after that is when I went to Jena after I was in in Berlin. And when you look back at that period that you were there, what was your most memorable moment, the moment that just really sticks with you and that you're, you know, perhaps, you know, what you're really proud of? That is a great question. Um, I, I would I would probably say the, the time that I was able to translate um, from German into, into Spanish and um it's you know I had one person actually ask me before if I if I have to go from German to English to Spanish and uh, I said no I don't have time for that I have to go directly from German to Spanish um, 
but uh, I had I had an advantage in some ways because I grew up speaking both Spanish and English at the same time, and so uh, so I wasn't I wasn't having to uh, rely upon education to get there. Right, uh, the education I had from Spanish and, and English was all at the same time, and so the pathways I guess you could say were were all kind of there. Uh, just on a, on another note, maybe on the opposite, the things that I'm maybe not the most proud of. <laughs> my companion and I one time took off our name tags once and talked into them just to see what people would think. And, and one person thought the, the Stasi was back. <laughs> so, yeah, oh, no. yeah that, that was not, that was not a proud moment. <laughs> we, we just, we said, we're sorry. We're sorry. Yeah. We're, we're just joking. And we put it back, but yeah, people were, uh, people were very scared. They were they were, they were very scared that people would would uh, you know that somebody was watching every move that they made and um, uh, I, I think I mentioned to you that um, in in when I was in Gurlitz that that's when the uh, they opened up the Stasi office so you can actually go and check your file and see what was in there and uh, uh, one of the campaigns I was living there with he actually went and and looked at his file and he said it was you know this thick and it had everything that he did for, you know, every single day, like who he talked to and how long he talked to them and where he was and where he went to after that. And, you know, I, I'm still looking to see if I can get access to my file, but we'll see someday. Yeah. Yeah. And when was he there from? Was he there from the same time as you yeah. from March? Yeah. yeah. He was, he had actually been there. He had been there probably three months before I arrived. So he, he was probably there by uh, December or January. Okay. Yeah. And he had been there a little bit longer okay. than I was. Yeah, it's interesting because it, it makes you wonder whether the, the Stasi still sort of was there in outside of Berlin. They were, you know, they, they were still able to keep the organization going. Yeah. Whereas because you always see those images of the, the main headquarters in uh, in East Berlin being stormed. By, yes. Uh, yeah, that's right. The East Berliners. Yeah, yeah and I, I don't remember exactly when that was, but uh, that would have been, I guess that might have been in December of 89, maybe. Yeah, like yeah, I think it was pretty soon. Yeah. After, I think it's it's when things like, you know, the, the newspapers and the TV channels were showing some of the corruption yeah. that had been going on and, and how the leaders lived. Although, you know, I, I look at those leaders' homes, <laughs> they look pretty modest yeah. compared to well, they uh, could have been. some places. Yeah. But, but obviously, from, a, from an East German point of view, they were quite um, lavish and obviously they had access to all hard currencies. Yeah, that's and true. Nice hi-fi and the latest TVs and things like yeah, that. That's so, true, and they um, and they could watch Western TV if they wanted. And they could do all kinds of yeah, things. Yeah, it was, yeah. It was a completely different lifestyle than the rest of the country. Yeah. Dresden was known as the Valley of the Clueless because they couldn't pick up West German TV signal there. So I'm wondering whether a lot of these places that you went to were also similarly sort of isolated from from Western exposure because the TV signal didn't reach Yeah, I, I certainly Cottbus and uh, Görlitz would have been, I mean, because they're even further east than, than Dresden. And so, yeah, certainly they would have had a little more difficult time. Schwerin, where I served for a couple of months, uh, I think three months, uh, they're just, they're very close to Hamburg. And so maybe within an hour or two, something like that. Uh, so they, they were, and then not too far from Denmark either. So they, they might've had a little more access there. Um, uh, uh, but, 
Yeah, I, I do remember at one point there was a there was a brother from the church that he he had satellite television and he was able to watch American TV. Um, and this was this was uh, this would have been probably I'm trying to think here, trying to remember. This probably would have been about May or June of '91, something like that. Uh, when mm-hmm. when he was telling me about this, and uh, sometimes he would talk to me about you know uh, different sports events that he was able to watch on American TV and things. He's like, Hey, did you know that this was going on? I was like, I'm a missionary. I don't know anything about this. <laughs> so, <laughs> so yeah. yeah, but that was, but that was interesting. So, I mean, they, they really appreciated being able to get access to Western TV when, when, you know, they finally were able to do that. Uh, but yeah, that's, that's interesting. You mentioned them that, that Dresden was a city of the clueless. Is there anything we've missed, Ken? Any, anecdotes that you think we've not touched on you know i remember uh at the train stations uh close to coat booths um there was uh there was a restaurant there that i tried solyanka for the first time which is a russian soup and i really enjoyed it i thought it was fantastic and you know we could we always saw russians that are there we always saw them you know everywhere pretty much and uh you know you could get russian food and that kind of thing which I thought was really, really, I don't know, really interesting, really fascinating to me just to see the different types of architecture and things that were there. Um, I think I did see the other day that there's still a statue of Lenin in Shverin. Um Maybe they, I don't know if they've taken it down or not, but it's the only one that's still standing uh, from what I remember. Um, and they, they just want to keep it up as kind of a, uh, kind of a memento to that history, you know, knowing that, yeah, this was once part of a, part of their history and and you can't really erase that but um yeah it was it was uh, it was really a fascinating time i, I really uh, really enjoyed my time there and, and i was really glad to be able to have a part of it i you know I, I think that we didn't always um appreciate how different the times were um when we were there and uh and how how influential it was for us to be there with with some of these these people um you know, they, they love seeing Americans. They love talking to us. They loved asking us questions about things. Um, in, in one of the cities I was in, um, the, they knew us as the two Americans just because we were so different from everybody else. And, uh, you know, it, it was, it was fun. It, it was, it was, it was a wonderful time to be there. Well, the whole, the whole suit and tie combo <laughs> does make you stand out. And to be fair, it does make you look a bit CIA. Yeah, it, it does. Doesn't it? Yeah, it does. Yeah. Yeah, or with with good reason, right? Because you know people would, uh, you know, people didn't typically wear a suit and tie. I, I was I was always struck by by Soviet architecture because uh, it was very Spartan. It was very plain, right? And it was just functional, mm. but it wasn't it wasn't very artistic. Um, um, I think I sent you a picture once. Uh, let me see if I if I have. Yeah, I, I think I sent you a picture of, of us being in one of those uh, old apartment complexes. They looked old to me, but they were actually fairly new um uh with just basically concrete slabs and uh and so we were standing there and my companion took a picture of me standing in front of it yeah these these photos are great i particularly like the one of your uh friend in mirana yes yeah looking out down that down that street <laughs> yeah. um yeah yeah because i mean some of these places must have looked like world war Two had finished last yes. week yes I know. <laughs> yes. In terms of the in terms of the battle damage, and, yep. 
Yeah. Uh, you know, and, and going back to Dresden, uh, there, there was a, there's a, there's a church there called the, the Frauenkirche and it was, uh, uh, destroyed in world war two, you know, the, all the wood burned out. And, and as a result of that, the, the building collapsed and, uh, it, you know, it took a couple of days for it, but it, it finally did collapse, but, but they left it there. And so when I was there in Dresden, I believe, uh, I'm trying to remember exactly when that would have been, it probably would have been, April or May of, of, of 90, uh, it was still a big pile of rocks and a big pile of, of bricks and things. And the, the Soviets had kept it up as a, as a memorial to the war saying, this is what the war did. This is what the British and the Americans did to us kind of a thing. And, um, you know, they, they eventually collected enough money to be able to rebuild it. And it's a beautiful building now. And lots of, I, I, I think one of the things that was really touching about that was, was the, the British actually donated uh, a new cross for the top of the church. And so when you, when you go, if you ever go there and see that, you'll be able to see that, that that's been done. And I think that's, that's a beautiful gesture, you know, of, of the healing that can come over time and, and things, the brotherhood between West Germany. Yeah. I think it was, it might've been donated by the city of Coventry so. in the UK, yeah. which was, not devastated to the same extent as Dresden but had a really heavy German bombing raid that destroyed the cathedral there which is still in ruins in Coventry and they built a new one next to it in the 1950s I think so uh, yeah no I agree with you I think that's a it's a, that's a lovely gesture of, of reconciliation and we have further information such as videos and links in our show notes, which will show as a link in your podcast app. Now, this show wouldn't exist without our generous Patreons, so I want to thank one and all of them for their support. You can very easily become a Patreon by going to coldwarconversations.com slash donate. If you can't wait for the next episode, please visit our Facebook discussion group where listeners just like you continue the Cold War conversation. Just search for Cold War Conversations in Facebook. Thank you very much for listening. It is really appreciated. Goodbye. not enjoying the ads well you can avoid them by going to coldwarconversations.com slash donate by becoming a monthly or annual supporter you'll enjoy ad-free listening become a part of our community receive the sought after cold war conversations drinks coaster and bask in the warm glow of knowing that you're helping to preserve cold war history just go to coldwarconversations.com slash donate for more information